Welcome to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast, where we discuss the world of IT and cybersecurity. Don't be left in the dark about what is going on in the world around you. Here is your host, Joe Gray. We are currently discussing the SANS Top 20 Security Controls. SANS Institute is an acronym for System Administration Network and Security Institute. They are a giant think tank of all things information network, uh, various types of security. They started with trade shows, then they started with training, and then they came up with the Global Information Assurance Certificate Program, which is GIAC. I myself have the GIAC System and Network Auditor GSNA certification. The SANS Top 20 Critical Security Controls for Effective Cyber Defense was put together based upon what was deemed a serious problem by the federal government in 2008. They basically put together a framework that was complementary to the government framework so that private industry and government could ultimately work together to determine what the biggest problems in security are and provide an open framework that anyone could access to actually implement a better security program. It was transferred to the Council on Cybersecurity in 2013, which is an independent global nonprofit entity committed to a secure and open internet. They focus on prioritizing security functions against the latest threats basing everything on what works in terms of products, processes, architectures, and services. Top priorities are standardization and automation. It is very complementary to the government's National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, Special Publication 853, which is the guiding light of all things government information security. I will post a link to this in the podcast Page. They do not replace the NIST, but they work very well together. Now let's move on to the next four controls. Welcome to the latest installment of the SANS Top 20. Today we will be covering controls 13 through 16 to include boundary defense, maintenance, monitoring, and analysis of audit logs, controlled access based on the need to know, and account monitoring and control. After this episode, we will only have one more, and then we will be done with the SANS Top 20 and move on to the OWASP Top 10. So to kick it off with boundary defense, first and foremost, it's a quick win, deny communication with or limit data flow to known malicious IP addresses via a blacklist or limit access only to trusted sites via whitelists. You can test this by sending packets from Bogon source IP addresses, non-routable or unused into the network to verify they are not transmitted through network perimeters. There are lists of Bogon addresses that are publicly available on the internet. Next, on DMZ networks, configure monitoring systems which may be built into the IDS sensors or a separate technology to record at least packet header information preferably the full packet. That's always the preferred method simply for the fact of you get the whole context, but it's not always possible due to latency, storage, technologies, etc. 
the traffic should then be sent to the SIM or log analysis system so that they can correlate from all devices on the network. Next, to lower the chance of a spoofed email message, implement sender policy framework by deploying SPF records in DNS and enabling receiver-side verification in the mail servers. Next, you will deploy network-based IDS sensors on internet and extranet DMZ systems and networks that look for unusual attack mechanisms and detect compromise of these systems. They may detect attacks through the use of signatures, behavior analysis, hybrid, or any other mechanism. Next, network-based intrusion prevention systems should be deployed to complement the IDS by blocking known bad signatures or behavior of attacks. As attacks become automated, methods such as IDS typically delay the amount of time it takes for someone to react to an incident. A properly configured intrusion prevention system can provide automation to block bad traffic. Next, design and implement network perimeters so that all outgoing web, FTP, SSH, traffic, etc. must pass through at least one proxy on a DMZ network. It should support logging individual sessions, blocking URLs, domain names, and IP addresses so that you can implement a blacklist or implement a whitelist if you so choose. Organizations should force outbound traffic to the internet through the authenticated proxy server. This can be used to encrypt all traffic leaving an organization. This can also be used as a point for intrusion detection and prevention systems to be able to see all traffic and gather all passive traffic data for further analysis. Next, require all remote login access for VPN, dial-up, and anything else to use two-factor authentication. All enterprise devices remotely logging into the internal network should be managed by the enterprise with remote control of the configuration. This is where it gets sticky with regards to like bring your own device and teleworking and whatnot. Next, Periodically scan for back-channel communications to the internet that bypass the DMZ, unauthorized VPN connections, dual-homed hosts connected to the enterprise network, and anything via wireless dial-up or other mechanisms. VPNs going outbound, circumventing everything is usually a pretty good indicator of malware. Next, to limit access by an insider, an untrusted subcontractor or vendor, or malware spreading on an internal network, Use internal network segmentations to limit traffic and apply an access control list to it. To minimize the impact of an attacker pivoting between compromised systems, only allow DMZ systems to communicate with private network systems via application proxies or application-aware firewalls. To help identify covert channels exfiltrating data through a firewall, configure the built-in session tracking mechanisms including in, included in many firewalls to identify TCP sessions that last for an unusually long time for the given organization. This should also alert people in the security world so that they can take a look at it. And finally, deploy NetFlow connection and analysis to DMZ network flows to look for activity that is away from the norm. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss maintenance monitoring and analysis of audit logs. Are you looking for a place to advertise to the unique audience of IT security professionals and enthusiasts? Look no further. Advanced Persistent Security is seeking sponsors. This slot could be yours. Contact sales at advancedpersistentsecurity.net for more information. 
Thanks for sticking around through the break. Now we are going to discuss maintenance, monitoring, and analysis of audit logs. First and foremost, include at least two synchronized time sources via NTP. My personal favorite is with NIST, but almost everyone has one. And if you are geographically separated, you may want to have everyone using UTC, which is Coordinate Universal Time. Next, you should validate audit log settings for each device and the software to make sure that the logs include a date, timestamp, source and destination address, and any other element that you consider useful. Protocol may be worthwhile, such as TCP versus UDP, etc. Next, you should ensure all systems that store logs have adequate storage space. That's a pretty much given control, but you should check it periodically to make sure that they don't fill up and you should establish a log rotation interval. Develop a log retention policy to make sure that logs are kept for a specific amount of time, such as three months, one year, or as we saw with the Experian data breach, 25 months. Too often organizations are compromised and don't know it, as we saw with the Scott trade attack this week. That means that logs should be kept as long as possible in terms of budget for storage, maintenance, and security for the logs themselves. And then that way they can go back and look at them at a later time and say, okay, yeah, you were breached, here's who did it, here's how it worked. Next, you should have security personnel and or sysadmins run biweekly reports that uh, identify anomalies in logs. So then that way they can find out if the equipment is trying to fail, if there's a software issue, or if someone's trying to or has tampered with the logs. Next, you should configure network boundary devices such as firewalls, intrusion detection systems, proxies, etc. to verbosely log all traffic both allowed and blocked so you can see any patterns that may exist there. For all servers, ensure that logs are written to write-only devices or a dedicated logging server running on separate machines from those hosts. That way the hacker has a harder time manipulating the data. You should deploy a SIM, Security Incident and Event Management System, or a log analysis tool to aggregate the logs and try to correlate it to other events such as passive data that you're seeing over the wire and vulnerability scan data. Next, you should monitor for service creation events and enable process tracking logs. Windows has PS exec. I can't think of anything for Linux off the top of my head, but I'm sure there's something. And then finally, ensure that the log collection system does not lose events during peak activity due to latency, bandwidth, etc., and that the system detects and alerts if event log loss occurs. This includes ensuring that the log collection system can accommodate intermittent or restricted bandwidth connectivity through the use of handshaking and flow control. Back to the log thing for Windows having PS exec, Big Brother can kind of do that in the Linux world. I just thought about that. Anyway, that's the final part of this control. Sit tight. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss controlled access based on the need to know. Are you subscribed to this podcast? If not, please do so on iTunes and at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash podcast. Thanks for sticking around. Now we're going to discuss controlled access based on the need to know. Mm, the wonderful need to know that everyone loves and hates. 
This is a short series, so let's kick it off. Number one, locate any sensitive information on separated VLANs with firewall filtering. All communication of sensitive information over less trusted networks should be encrypted. That's a quick win. The problem with this is people don't want to take the time to figure out what is considered sensitive, what is considered soft intellectual property, what is considered hard intellectual property. Next, enforce detailed audit logging for access to non-public data and special authentication for sensitive data. This would be using two-factor authentication for the entire network and then maybe even using three-factor or a different second factor, such as like an RSA key or a text or something to get to the sensitive data. Next, segment the network based on the trust levels of the information stored on the servers. Whenever information flows over a network with a lower trust level, the information should be encrypted. This goes back to the whole VLAN segmentation thing, and it also ties in with identifying what is sensitive. Finally, use host-based data loss prevention to enforce access control lists when the data is copied off a server. Basically, if you don't want data being copied off using USB devices, prohibit them. Only allow certain people, such as privileged users, to be able to use USB devices and copy data off the servers that already have a restricted access control list. Advanced persistent security can help you identify what your sensitive data is, what is soft intellectual property, what is hard intellectual property, and help you come up with a plan to actually accomplish this control fairly easily. Sit tight, we're gonna take our final break and then we will discuss account monitoring and control. Don't forget to check out our blog at advancedpersistentsecurity.net slash blog. Follow us on Twitter at ADV Persistent SEC and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com advanced persistent security. Thanks for sticking around through the final break. This is the final segment. We're covering account monitoring and control. I apologize in advance. This is a little bit longer than I expected, but nonetheless, we still should not break the 30-minute mark. So to kick it off, you review all system accounts and disable any account that cannot be associated with the business process and owner. This applies to users as well. My typical rule of thumb is when a user leaves, we disable their account for 90 days. That way, if we need anything from the account or any data from, say, their My Documents folder or whatever, or if there's a legal reason or a forensic reason, we still have it. On day 91, the account is deleted. Next, ensure all accounts have an expiration date associated with the account. I would I would say that's applicable for temporary service accounts and some user accounts, but generally speaking, I've found that having a password policy with an expiration date for the password accomplishes this. You don't want to put an expiration date on your CEO's account when there's nothing leading up to him leaving. If someone turns in a two-week notice, you can script it so that the account is disabled in, say, two weeks. Next, ensure that all systems automatically create a report that includes a list of locked-out users, disabled accounts, and accounts with passwords that are outside the password age. Accounts with passwords that never expire, etc. And the system administrator should take a look at it and ascertain the validity of this and provide written justification for everything 
within the list. Next, establish and follow a process for revoking system access by disabling accounts immediately upon termination, etc. That right there is what I was discussing with the first control. It, disabling it instead of deleting it allows preservation of audit trails. Next, you should regularly monitor the use of all accounts, automatically logging off users after a certain period of activity. You should regularly monitor the use of all accounts, automatically logging off users after a standard period of inactivity. If you deploy the security guides from the Department of Defense, the STIGs, that is one of the controls. They have about a 15 minute window before the account uh, logs off. Next, you should configure lock screens on systems to limit access to unattended workstations. That only works if you have it that where the screensaver comes on after, say, 15 minutes and it requires a password. Next, monitor account usage to determine dormant accounts notifying the user or user's manager. Disable the accounts if not needed or document and monitor exceptions. If you have a vendor that only logs in, say, every four to six months, that would be acceptable, but my honest recommendation would be disable the account until the user actually requires it. Next, require that all non-administrator accounts have strong passwords that contain letters, numbers, and special characters changed every 90 days with a minimal age of one day and not allowed to use the previous 15 passwords as a new password. These can be adjusted based on specific business needs of the organization. For most of my experience, the number is 24 instead of 15 previous passwords, so theoretically, you can use the same password every 25 days. If you let it expire, it's every four years. We also require 15 character passwords. Next, use and configure account lockouts such that after a set number of failed attempts occurs, the account is locked out for a certain period of time. This is another one that's pretty standard. The threshold, in my opinion, should be either five or three, depending on the sensitivity of the machine. Next, require that managers match active employees and contractors with each account belonging to their managed staff. Administrators should then disable the accounts that are not assigned to active employees, etc. Next, monitor attempts to access deactivated accounts through audit logging. Configure access for all accounts through a centralized point such as Active Directory or LDAP, Lightweight Directory Authentication Protocol. Configure network and security devices for centralized authentication as well. Profile each user's typical account usage by determining normal time of day access and account duration, and then find deviations from that. If you have that user that only works 9 to 5, never goes on call, but does periodically log in between 8 and 10 p.m. to run a specific report for management, when they're logging in at 8 to 10 like they normally would, and then again at 3 to 4 in the morning, that could be a problem. Next, require multi-factor authentication for accounts that have access to sensitive data or systems. That could be achieved using smart cards with certificates, one-time password tokens, biometrics, text messages, RSA keys, etc. For authenticated access to web services within an enterprise, ensure that Usernames and passwords are passed over an encrypted channel and associated hash files are stored securely if you're not using something like Active Directory or LDAP. 
Next, configure all systems to use encrypted channels for the transmissions of passwords over a network. Ideally, you don't even want to put the passwords in transmission on a network. If you can just give the user the password, that would be more ideal just simply on the fact that it is possible for someone to decrypt the channels using something like Beast or Poodle to compromise the passwords or even a man-in-the-middle attack. Finally, verify that all password files are encrypted or hashed and that they cannot be accessed without root or admin privileges. Audit all access to password files in the system. There you have it. That's controls number 13 through 16. Next week, we will cover the final four controls, which are data protection, incident response and management, secure network engineering, and penetration tests and red team exercises. If you like this podcast, please love us and give us a five-star review on iTunes. You could also find us on Spreaker, YouTube, and Stitcher Radio. If you have any questions, concerns, or recommendations, please email them to podcast at advancedpersistentsecurity.net. Thank you for listening to the Advanced Persistent Security Podcast. Until next time, stay secure and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast.